0: greetings and hello to everyone this is the business of betting podcast and i'm your host jake williams today we have kevin bragg joining the show kevin is a full-time attorney from columbus ohio and the brain behind the quant coach Kevin is an NFL football expert who has written academic papers about the game and his approach to understanding the complex nuances of the NFL. Kevin covers many topics including play design, coaching IQ, and even how he once lined up against Ken Griffey Jr. in high school. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Kevin Bragg. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Bragg. Kevin, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Jake. I'm uh, glad to be here.
0: Kevin, you're an attorney at a law firm in the U.S., you're the quant coach and you do some stuff on the website and, and Twitter and you're, a, as you say, a hobby NFL handicapper. But I would say, you know, you're as tuned in to what's going on as anyone I've spoken to, including professionals who do it for a living. So I'm very excited to chat with you. To get things rolling here, do you want to go through a little bit about your background and touch on some of the, the football aspects and, and even the betting aspects and I guess what interests you about those topics?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to do that, Jake. And again, thanks, thanks for having me on and your kind words. Um, I was literally born into a football family in Cincinnati, Ohio. My father was a 7th and 8th grade football coach in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he literally was out on the practice field when my mom went into labor and I came in off the practice field and, and took her to the hospital. And a few days later, um, named me after a former Notre Dame football player, Kevin Hardy, And so it's always been in my family. Uh, My father coached all the years uh, that I was growing up, and I spent a lot of time with him at the practice field and looking at film on the wall in our house and deciding on his teams who would be the best players to play what positions. And it was a lot of fun. It was a a great way to grow up. Um, Football is a huge um, sport of interest in Ohio, all over Ohio, as you know, the Pro Football Hall of Fame is in Ohio, Ohio State University in Columbus is a massive interest to the entire state, and Cincinnati is no exception. There's tons of great football in Cincinnati, Ohio. I went to um, high school in Cincinnati, Ohio at Archbishop Muller High School, which in the 70s and 80s was a football powerhouse, high school football powerhouse, won lots of state championships, including my senior year. I played with guys like Tom Waddle, who went on to play for the Chicago Bears and gained some fame as for the All-Madden team and now does a lot of broadcasting for ESPN and the NFL Network and is a daily sports talk radio host in the mm-hmm. Chicago area. And then I played also with uh, Ken Griffey Jr., who obviously went on to become one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And I cover those guys every day in practice, so... It was an incredible experience to be able to go nose to nose with athletes like that who were so incredibly talented at such a young age, and I think it gave me a great appreciation for you know, what a great athlete really is and what makes a really great athlete and a great competitor. And then fast forward about 30 years, I became very interested in quantifying and analyzing coaching using statistics and objective methods because it seemed like an area that nobody was looking at or taking a deep dive on. And I made that my specialty. In 2008, I wrote a paper, and uh, it was published in a journal that was headed up by Ben Alomar, who is now the ESPN director of sports analytics. The paper was called Quantifying NFL Coaching, a Proof of New Growth Theory, which is a pretty uh, academic way of saying, I was looking at how do you measure play design for NFL teams. And I presented that paper in 2008 at Menlo College out in Palo Alto at a conference that Ben Eleanor hosted. Next year started uh, using what I call coaching statistics to analyze the NFL. The first few years, I just did it for fun. And uh, a few years after that, I started to use it to handicap NFL games more as a test of whether it would work or not and whether my theories and – that I based it on were were legitimate and valid. And uh, it was also fun to have some action on the games to be able to follow along with. And what I found out since I've been doing this since 2009 is that it holds up very well. Uh, Better designed, better coached NFL teams win every year about 75% of the games. And when they lose, it's usually because of turnovers and breakdowns in the kicking game.
0: That's a very interesting approach. I know people obviously use some of those things in their handicap. In general, when you listen to sort of mainstream media talk about betting or even some of the the deep dive stuff, they'll often say, look, this person is a situational handicapper. They're looking at certain teams in certain spots, whether it's weather-related, whether it's travel-related, all sorts of different things. And then others are X's and O's. And they'll talk about how they know, you know, when an offensive lineman is out and they have to move another lineman across and that sort of has a cascading effect on that line and therefore the quarterback's... Not going to be as well protected or what happens when l Thomas is out how that impacts Camp Chancellor and you know Sherman and some other players on that defense they'll be very attuned to the xs and O's you have a slightly different approach where you talk about coaching and play design and some things like that it's quite an interesting way to look at the game and I guess if if you ask the general public or those who follow football and you said factor opinion you know Belichick is a excellent coach they'll say fact and and it's pretty easy when you get to the pointy end, whether good or bad. But then I guess in the middle, there's a, a large array of different coaches and tr- and trying to quantify that is not easy. So do you want to just take us through some of the things you think about and I guess how it impacts not only the betting, but just in general about football when you talk about coaches and, and play design?
1: Sure, Jake. I, I agree that when you talk about a coach like Belichick, the results are obvious that he's a fantastic play designer understands how to get a team ready, how to make adjustments during the game, has his finger on the pulse of their emotions. But remember, he was fired by the Browns uh, after five years when he was in Cleveland. So it wasn't always obvious, even with Bill Belichick, who's now, I think, without question, the greatest football coach the NFL has ever seen. And I have a few simple rules that I use to evaluate coaches. I think sometimes, Owners in the NFL and the media say some very spot-on, accurate things about coaching, and sometimes they're so far off base, it, it, it makes me hard to believe that they could be so wrong about some coaches. So some of the simple rules that I use are, first rule that I have is that the coaches, when they tell us, and this is a cliche in NFL football, they'll always say, well, we must avoid turnovers and be solid in the kicking game to win. That's absolutely true. There is nothing that can destroy a good game plan and beautiful play design like a few turnovers, a missed field goal, and a breakdown on punt protection. Just wreck the whole thing and make it useless and waste um, a great game plan, great execution on offense and defense. So when the head coaches give us that cliche of, you know, we we must avoid turnovers, we must be solid in the kicking game, it's absolutely true. The second thing that I discovered, I think, that would be counterintuitive the way most people would think about it, is that play design is actually more important relative to playmaking in the success in the NFL. If your team is even in turnovers and solid in the kicking game, and you have the better designed team, per my statistics, those teams win 95% of the time. That's not to say that a coach can make a great team out of terrible players. He can't. Certainly having better players will make the play design look better. And having better play design will make the, the players look better. And so there's a natural what they call a simultaneity problem in the NFL as to how that you divide up the credit between the play design, which mostly comes from the coaches and the playmaking which comes from the players and I did that in an objective way and the results are so consistent year after year after year that I feel very confident in saying that that while both elements uh, play design and playmaking from players are important to success the play design is definitely more important than who the players are in most cases. Um, my third rule is, is that the quarterback is both a play designer and a playmaker. And that is what makes the quarterback position in the on the NFL football field unique and different than the other 21 guys who are on the field at the same time. It may make it unique compared to all other sports. The power that an NFL quarterback has standing at the line to change and modify the production process in order to take advantage of weaknesses he sees in the other side is astounding. In any other business, in any other competition, if you were able to have the ability to adapt and change as quickly as an NFL quarterback does, you would be impossible to compete with. So it's an incredibly powerful position. I think that's why you see, particularly today, that most of the great quarterbacks are right around 30 years old or older, they tend to be much older than the other players on the field. Usually at the other positions when you're hitting 30, you've gotten your last big contract and you're done. And as you saw this week with Matt Stafford, who just of Detroit, who just signed a monster contract, when you hit 30 at quarterback in the NFL, you're just starting your peak. You know, I think the peak age, and I think this is going to continue in the future for NFL quarterbacks, is from 30 to 40. And that's because the quarterback is, again, he's a, he's a hybrid player. He's both a player and a coach because he has that adaptability and can change the design right there at the line of scrimmage. And then the fourth thing I think that people have to remember is that the rules of the game are crucial when you're evaluating any competitive system, um, whether it's handicapping NFL games or any other competitive system. And so the rules of the NFL have to be looked at with great detail. And the way I would illustrate that is to to say that NFL football and college football are completely different games.
0: So what about college football? Do the coaching stats or, or your approach apply well to college football?
1: I do not use the coaching statistics in any way on college football. I don't handicap college football. I don't bet on college football. I love watching college football. I think it's marvelously entertaining. Attending games live is spectacular fun, but there's big differences between NFL football and college football. First of all, the way the talent on the field is accumulated is completely different. In college, you have the recruiting process, and there's a lot more players who a college coach can accumulate. In the NFL, there's a draft, and the restrictions on how you can acquire players is much more limited. And so it makes the talent on each team much more even as compared to college football, and I think that's pretty obvious to anybody who watches the two sports. Uh, the second thing is that in college, a college team through its athletic department gets to handpick about a third of its games. So Ohio State is not going to get from the Big Ten Conference uh, all the games that it will play that year. It will play four non-conference games, and it will negotiate those contracts and pick those games um, for itself, and the NFL obviously, the teams play who the league dictates to. Everybody knows who will be the opponents based on order of finish years in advance. And then the third thing is, is just a physical difference on the field. Um, the most important difference is that the hash marks on a professional football field are in a different place than they are in a college football field. In the NFL, the hash marks are lined up with the uprights on the goalposts so they're much more narrow and the ball is essentially in the middle of the field throughout the whole game. In the college game, the hash marks are much wider and closer to the sidelines. And what that does is it creates a short a true short side of the field and a true wide side of the field. And Sports Illustrated did a great article on this a couple years ago in which they showed how the offensive coordinators in the college game had pretty much figured out how to exploit that wide side of the field to such an extent that the defenses are almost powerless to stop them. And you've seen an explosion with the spread offenses uh, just putting up points at incredible paces, incredible pace, piling up yards that nobody's ever seen before. And that's because the defenses just can't cover that wide side of the field. In the Sports Illustrated article, they asked Tom Herman, well, what if you move the hash marks into where they are in the NFL? He said that all go away. And I tend to think he's right because it would balance up the field much more. It would eliminate the true wide side of the field and and you would have a a very different game. So those are the kind of details, I think, when you're handicapping any sport that are kind of obvious, but they're so obvious that people don't think about them a whole lot. And you have to think about them if you're going to truly understand the game and give yourself the best chance you can to – objectively analyze the teams that are going to be playing in the competition. So do you think then play
0: design and and coaching, as you've discussed, is factored into the betting line or is it factored in enough?
1: I think for the most part it is factored in enough. Uh, When I look at the NFL lines after about the third or fourth week of the season, they tend to be right about where I would make the lines. Um, So I think that the bookmakers do a fantastic job of baking that into the price. I don't think they quite get there the same way I do, but there are lots of roads to roam and um, ways to figure this out. So I think that, generally speaking, that coaching is probably, it's pretty well priced by by the bookmakers. It's like anything else um, when you're in betting. You know, you're looking though for that one or two games where it's off. It's not always uh, factored in accurately. And what I'm always on the lookout for is those two or three games a week where I think it's off and looking to exploit that and have an advantage. So have you seen any,
0: maybe not perfect storm is the right word, but really good situations where you've been able to point to that, you know, the the play design is there and, and the playmakers are up to a certain standard that they're able to exploit that. I know Kyle Shanahan moved to to, the, to a head coaching job with the 49ers for this season. I know Chip Kelly was a disaster in the NFL, even, you know, in, in NBA. you got Sam Henke had a different style of general managing. And then even from the college perspective, you've got someone like Tom Herman who's taking on a big role and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Are you able to, I guess, not necessarily predict, but get a good sense or a good guide of how it's going to work given a certain coach in a certain situation?
1: I can usually narrow it down to a handful of candidates who I think will be breakout coaching performances during a year. It's still awfully hard to land on that one that really does it, um, especially ahead of time before you start to see some evidence of it. Um, I did fairly well with Kyle Shanahan in Atlanta, who was by far and away the Coach of the Year in the NFL last year. When I hand out awards on my Quant Coach website at the end of the year for Coach of the Year, I, I don't consider just the head coaches. I consider the coordinators too, and I even would consider a quarterback under the right circumstances. I think Peyton Manning in his last years was every bit as much a coach as he was a player on the field. And Kyle Shanahan did a spectacular job in Atlanta last year. Uh, I did do fairly well with Atlanta um, later in the season. They actually were better on the road to bet than they were at home and uh, that, that worked out fairly well. On the flip side of it too, during a season you can sometimes find the team that is falling apart in their coaching and last year the Rams were a classic example of that. After Jeff Fisher was fired and they brought in a new quarterback who didn't have any experience and their offensive coordinator was very inexperienced too. That was a situation that you could just circle. And I looked at the Rams every week with the intent of laying them and betting against them and fading them. And that they, I don't don't think, covered a game in their last seven games or so. As far as an individual game, I can tell you one that that was spectacularly well set up for this. And that was Super Bowl 48 between the Seahawks and the Broncos. Uh, Seattle came into Super Bowl 48 with historically great pass coverage. That was because they had great players like Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor and Earl Thomas, but it was also because Pete Carroll is an outstanding defensive play designer. He does not get as much credit as he should because what he does is very simple. It's deceptively simple, but it is brilliant. He can see the field, the entire field, very well. He's off of the coaching tree of Monty Kiffin, who coached was longtime defensive coordinator in the NFL. Before that, he was a college defensive coordinator going all the way back into the early 70s at Nebraska, a brilliant defensive line. So Pete Carroll has all the pedigree to be great at this. The Seahawks had spectacularly great pass coverage uh, in 2013. Denver came in with Peyton Manning, the most popular and public player in all of the NFL, off a record-setting 55-touchdown pass performance. The bookmakers actually got the line right initially. They made the Seahawks two and a half point favorites, but the public money just poured in on Denver and it quickly went to Denver being a two and a half point favorite, and that's where it stayed. And I had a very good feeling that Seattle would not only win, but they would win big because what I thought would happen was they would get the lead, and when Peyton Manning falls behind, he will turn the ball over and that it would mount from there. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I didn't anticipate they would get a safety on the first offensive play of the game. So I mean, it was one of those days where kind of everything was going the way that I expected it to go. And there was some luck involved in that, certainly. But I do think that pass coverage play design is a really, really important part of NFL football. It is very hard for the public to detect and understand when that is happening as it's happening in real time. And you know, if you can land on that, if you see that opportunity, you can really um, have a great, great outcome on that. And the bookmakers ended up just killing it on Super Bowl 48. I think they held 18% of all bets in Las Vegas, which was a, a massive record for the Super Bowl. It was the best Super Bowl ever for them because once they once they got it to two and a half, they wouldn't budget. They wouldn't move it up to three. I'm sure they were trying to avoid being middled on some things. They had a few experiences over the long course of the Super Bowl, troubles with middles. Not very often, but still something with, you know, there's only one game on Sunday and it's going to be that heavily bad that they have to be very, very cognizant of. But I also think that they were just flat out taking a position that Seattle was going to win and that they were trying to encourage as much Denver money to flow into the system as possible in this little Seattle. And it sure paid off. Uh,
0: for them. yeah absolutely and i guess that was an extreme result but and i think if you play that game you know 100 times seattle are going to win much more than 50 and the odds were suggesting something else so i think it's a it's a good example you put forward there and on that theme of i guess quarterbacks as, as play makers and play designers and uh, i guess the value of quarterbacks now can you talk a little bit how you approach the draft and i guess specifically quarterbacks i know this year there was uh, obviously, the trade up for Trubisky, and and it seems like he's probably going to get some snaps this year if things go poorly for Glennon, and that you know that's foreseeable in the first sort of half of the season you would imagine, and then you've obviously got Pat Mahomes in Kansas City. Uh, everyone sort of thinks, or it seems pretty clear outwardly, that he's going to be taking over from Alex Smith relatively soon. Maybe not, you know, early this season or even this season at all, but in the future and then Deshaun Watson in Houston and now it seems like Kaiser's going to start in Cleveland. So there's a number of quarterbacks coming out this season who could have an impact for their teams for better or worse. I guess, can you talk a little bit about how you evaluate them, how you look at them as as playmakers and play designers coming out and then also, you know, the the impact that coaching can have on them?
1: Sure. Um, First of all, in evaluating them just as players, I would not say that I am an expert talent scout. But I I would say that there are times occasionally when quarterbacks come out when any dang fool can tell that this guy's going to be great. It's it's much less frequent, I think, than the media and the public believe it is. But when John Elway came out of Stanford back in the 80s, it was obvious that John Elway was perfectly sized and designed and trained to be a spectacular NFL quarterback. I've always said that if you had an NFL draft based on, you ignored what they did in production in the NFL, but just based on players coming out of their college experience, and you took every single player that ever played in the NFL, that John Elway would be the number one pick in every NFL draft. He was that good a prospect. I think Troy Aikman was pretty much the same way, and I think Andrew Luck was pretty much the same way. But unless you have a really truly transcendent prospect, then it kind of becomes a grab bag as to who would be great. I think that the four that were picked in the first round this year that you mentioned thought all would be pretty good players, but I didn't see a whole lot of difference between any of them. If you'd asked me, well, which of the four do you want to take? I would say, well, it's all kind of the same to me. Tell me who my coach is. Who's my play designer? That'll tell me who, you know, I would think would be a good fit. Because I think it's very important that the quarterback, and the head coach, especially offensive coordinator, are all on the same page, that they have good functional relationships, that they understand their roles, however they may be, um, and and that they can get along and be functional and productive. Um, You're going to have a different situation if you have Peyton Manning as your quarterback than you're going to have with Tom Brady as your quarterback. Peyton Manning is going to have a lot more assertive personality He's going to give the directions to the offense and expect the people to follow him. And so you're going to have an offensive coordinator who's going to be a confidant of him and who's going to be more of an equal than uh, truly his boss, as you typically be in a, a corporate organization chart. And you're going to want a, a head coach who focuses on defense. And that's what the Colts formula was when they had all those great years with Peyton Manning, Tom Moore, was a quarter coach who, personality-wise, was a good fit with Peyton. Tony Dungy was a great defensive play designer who said, you guys just take care of it. And they had tremendous success. On the other hand, if you have a quarterback who's like Tom Brady or Joe Montana, who is extremely adaptable to taking directions from the coach, whoever the offensive play designer may be, um, then you have a different situation. And I think it, I think it's a little bit easier to manage Uh, for the the head coach. I don't think it's any coincidence that the truly great dynasties in the NFL typically have uh, those type B type quarterbacks, Bart Starr at Green Bay, Tom Brady at New England, Joe Montana at San Francisco. None of them were the first pick in the draft. None of them were even first round picks. They all were picked lower in the draft and they all excelled in taking directions from their coaches and carrying out the designs their coaches drafted up, and as they matured and as they gained more knowledge, they became very much active and co conspirators in that effort. But in the beginning, they were just basically doing what they were told. The Steelers of the 70s stand out as the stark example of this, where Terry Bradshaw was a golden armed can't miss prospect, the number one pick in the draft, and very difficult to coach. He had a very rocky relationship with Chuck Noll, and in some respects, I think that makes to me that makes Chuck Noll very, very high on the list of the greatest coaches of all time. So I think what you're looking for, unless there is a truly outstanding, everybody knows that this guy is a campus prospect at quarterback, you're looking to fit your play design with your quarterback. So if you have a coach like Bruce Arians in Arizona, who has a high risk tolerance, he's going to try to uh, take chances in order to get returns in production, and he will live with a few more turnovers maybe than another coach would, then you'd be looking for you know a strong-on quarterback like Pat Mahomes who came out of Texas Tech would have been a really good fit there, I thought, for their system. Um, I think that Mitch Trubisky is a good fit um, pretty much anywhere because I see him more as like a Montana and Tom Brady type of player who's pretty easy to coach. But um, I do think that you know, coming up with that fit and, and making them work within the system is an absolute key to it. And because you can do that, you don't necessarily have to find your quarterback in the first round. I mean, we've seen the last few years Russell Wilson you know, excel in Seattle coming out of the third round. And then last year, Dak Prescott was drafted in the fifth round, and he took the whole NFL by storm. So it can happen if you can get a good fit between your quarterback and your play designers. Everybody's on the same page, you'll end up, you know, with great production. You do have to have your other 21 guys uh, on the team, you know, be very good players and also uh, growing all in the same direction. But it's uh, it's definitely a position I think that it has become more more of a a playmaker, more of a player on the field that is taking direction than uh, the player who is dictating to the coaches and giving directions. In my view, Peyton Manning was, I I always called him the P-Rex because I thought he was a dinosaur. I really think he was the last true uh, example of that old-fashioned breed of quarterback who really ran the show. And I don't know if we will ever see that again. Maybe we will. Maybe there will come a player who, who comes along who has such a pedigree and such a grasp for the system that he will be able to essentially be the most important element in the play design of the equation. But there's nobody in the league right now like that, not even Tom Brady. Uh, and I, I don't know that we'll ever see that again.
0: So what has changed in football, and I guess what impact has that had on betting over the years? There's obviously a lot more plays now. You spoke about no-huddle offenses. Is obviously because of those things. There's higher scoring. The rules have changed to protect the quarterback. And I guess we've, I guess you hear quite often this is the highest total you know ever when it gets in a high. Not ever, but obviously in certain circumstances when it's high in the fifties and it's pushing up and up and up. And you know the the media reacts to to some of those numbers. What has changed over the years that has had such a, a profound impact on, I guess, the betting markets and making them more efficient and, I guess, a better understanding of not only the game uh, with more media coverage, but also on the betting side with, you know, really accurate lines and predictions?
1: Well, I think the NFL football is the most technological game that of all the sports in the United States, maybe the world. I mean, you can see it just on the sidelines with the headsets and... The coaches up in the booth who are radioing down to other coaches on the field and coaches talk into players' helmets through radio communications and they have Microsoft Surface Pro tablets now on the sidelines. The, the NFL especially has always embraced technology and made technology part of the game going back to the 50s when film study became a big part of football really much more so than baseball or soccer, and I think basketball has caught up a lot in that respect, but I still think the NFL is is at the cutting edge of that and really the leader in that way, and I think the betting markets mirror that. I think you know you see a lot more technology and analytics and quantification ability in the betting markets. I think those two things just mirror each other, and so it's almost like an arms race. You have to do it because the other side is doing it in order to keep up or you'll just be obliterated. And, and that I think is the biggest change uh, in the betting markets as well as the game. And I think in the betting markets, both sides of the counter have done that. I think that the line makers have become a lot more sophisticated and a lot more quantified and have used technology to make better lines. And I think the betters too have done the same thing. And so it's a constant arms race between the betters and the winemakers to come up with new formulas and new algorithms and new ways to measure and examine the performances and the expected performances to um, get the best of the number and, and, and make sure that your chances of winning are as great as they can possibly be.
0: And what about on the field?
1: On the field, I think that the biggest change in NFL football over the last 30 years is actually what I call waste reduction. I think that especially with Belichick and New England, and I think this is the secret sauce in New England, it's not production. It's not what they're doing differently to move the ball and take it down the field. It is what they do to avoid waste. And primarily by waste I mean turnovers and sacks. Um, They are always very rank very high in pass protection, the Patriots do, by the statistics that I use, and they're always one of the teams that is in the top ten, usually in the top five in turnover margin. And I think a lot of that just has to do with once you've won so much, Belichick, it's sort of self-reinforcing, he can be a lot less tolerant of people who turn the ball over than maybe another coach would be with a player who provides production, but also maybe is a fumbler or throws interceptions. So across the board, though, in the NFL, even beyond Belichick, the number of turnovers and the amount of sacks um, have been greatly reduced over the last 30 years. That's mostly due to the short passing game that Bill Walsh in San Francisco in the 1980s pioneered, and that has been refined and refined and refined and refined to such a point that... It's really tough for defensive coordinators to design pass pressure that can get to a quarterback unless they can um, create pass coverage that will slow the whole system down. And that's a great challenge for, for the defensive side of the ball. And they, they right now, I think, are a little little behind on that. But it's it's a pendulum that swings back and forth.
0: So I want to talk about and touch on public money and its impact on the NFL lines in NFL betting, you mentioned the Patriots and and in the Brady and Belichick era, they're always covered in all the media outlets. They're always spoken about, and they might open minus seven and a half point favorites at home, and then they'll get up bet up to nine nine and a half point favorites, or they might be double digit favorites, and they'll be playing a bad team, and they and they'll still cover. And over their sort of period at the at the Patriots, they've been positive expectation value. You know, over that period of time, which implies that, you know, they've been underrated or undervalued as a as a betting prospect, and and I guess the bookmakers are either, you know, haven't been spot on with their, I guess, predictions of the outcome based on those spreads, or they're they're factoring in that money. Do you think that the public money has a large impact on the betting lines in the NFL now, or do you think it's largely overblown and a lot of those fade the public sort of statistics that come out or the discussions about, you know, everyone's going to be betting, you know, against the Browns this week. Therefore, the Browns are a great bet. Some of those discussions are now a little bit more obsolete than they were.
1: Yeah, I think in the NFL, generally speaking, on, on most Sundays when all the teams are playing or most of the teams are playing, there may be a few on by, that public money doesn't impact the line all that much. I think that plays are predictions. I mean, that's that's what plays are. They are usually drawings of purposeful and intended conduct, and so they are future-looking, and we can determine from those what is supposed to happen going forward. And if you can quantify that, no matter how you do it, then you're going to get a pretty good idea of what is going to happen. There's a famous story of Bill Walsh telling Dwight Clark, the San Francisco wide receiver, was explaining a play to him. He said, now you'll go down 15 yards and you'll turn to the outside and there won't be anyone there covering you. Dwight Clark said, well, what do you mean there won't be? How can you know that there won't be anyone there covering you? Bill Walsh said, there won't be anyone there covering you. And Dwight Clark said, sure enough, I go and I run the play and there wasn't anyone there covering me. You do that a few times players will start believing in you, and because the game has so much forward-looking known quantities in it, I think that that makes it easier for the bookmakers to both get as close as you possibly can to perfect information and have the advantage play of being able to set the odds. So I think that, in general, the public money doesn't play as big a role in the NFL as maybe it does in some other sports um, on a a general basis. I think the fact that the Patriots keep covering lines in the face of this is perhaps the ultimate compliment to Belichick, that he keeps doing that, that he's still undervalued by the bookmakers, uh, even with the great success that he has that brings in the public money even with the bookmakers having neo-perfect information, even with the bookmakers having the odds advantage, there's still an expected value play. It just shows how great the New England organization is in putting all the pieces together to be successful. Um, last year, New England had the best ATS record in NFL history by some people's count. I think that that was a bit of an aberration. I think that a lot of that was built on their 3-1 and ATS record in the first four weeks when Brady was suspended. I think betting on the Patriots when they have a little bit of superficial adversity is a great proposition because nobody can make up for it better than Bill Belichick and the Patriots. And so if, you know, for those rare occasions when the Patriots are catching points, it's always a proposition that you should look at. Um, and I would never bet on a team that was giving New England points. I would never bet a favorite against New England, period. End of story. Ever do it, as long as Bill Belichick is there and they're still not showing any signs of changing. Um, there are times, certainly, where public money on a given game, on a given Sunday, will um, play a big role. Especially the Super Bowl, when there's just one game, and you know my example already: is Super Bowl 48, when Denver and Peyton Manning was the public team and the public player, and so the point spread was, if you were looking at who you thought was really going to win, uh, miscalculated and wrong. Then definitely yes, there are there are exceptions to that rule where, you know, public money can can make a big difference. But I don't think that just simply betting against the public. Um, would be a winning strategy other than if you're betting against the public, you're betting with the bookmaker. And the bookmaker has close to perfect information and the odds in his favor. So that's probably a pretty good way to go. Betting with the bookmaker is a a general rule. Uh, If that's the description of the rule that we're looking at, would make sense to me. Betting against the public would not.
0: I want to touch on the super contest the Las Vegas Hilton the Westgate started the super contest a few years back now and it's sort of gathered steam as we've you know gone the last few years especially and it's been covered a fair bit more and you know people from all over the country and probably the world now are getting involved in the super contest can you explain a little bit about the super contest and I guess your experience uh, with the super contest.
1: Sure. I, I played the super contest for, I think, four years and enjoyed it immensely. The super contest used to be a, a pretty small, intimate deal in Las Vegas in which a few hundred professional bettors would get together and put in their money, $1,500 entry fee, and, you know, play for those stakes run by, was the Hilton then. It was called the Hilton Super Contest. Now it's the Westgate Super Contest. And what really made the Super Contest a national phenomenon and exploded its growth was Bill Simmons, who's now with HBO, used to be with ESPN, started talking about it on his BS podcast with Chad Millman. And that's where I first heard about it, where I think most of the people outside of Las Vegas first heard about it was in listening to those Bill Simmons podcasts. And he would enter the contest and they would talk about it, pick five games against the spread, and it sounded like a lot of fun. So when I was back in the 2009-2010 frame, just starting to get a feel for these statistics, I thought that would be a good place to sort of test it out and see what could happen. And let me tell you, it is a brutal contest. <laughs> it sounds so simple. Pick five games against the spread. It is brutal. Uh, not only do you have the best handicappers, some of the best NFL handicappers in the world, you know, you just have waves and waves of handicappers. So... Winning it and, and cashing and finishing the money is, is super tough. I never did that. I never really came close to doing it. I have no uh, shame in, in sharing that with you. The vast majority of people would be in the same boat. It is, it is super hard. It's a great place to learn, though. It's a great place to test theories and experiment with new ways to use analytics and analyze NFL football. I highly endorse it for that. And I highly endorse it for the fun and the friends you can make in Nevada and along the way and doing it um, but it's not it's not something if you're really focused on obtaining a good return on investment um, it's not it's not a good vehicle for that
0: yeah, it seems a small enough sample size that there can be enough sort of randomness and variance, although you know you obviously have to be a very clever handicapper and very good at what you do. You can probably get on a bit of a hot streak and have a few sort of bounces that go your way and end up at you know 65 67 percent and have a good chance of cashing so i guess over a one season sample size i think it's still five games that you pick uh, per week so it's probably like you mentioned the roi is something you need to evaluate if you want to make some money out of it it might be just worth it for the fun it sounds like i certainly haven't played myself but it's something that i'll um i'll have to get stuck into i have to put a team together and it's a good way to be alive throughout the season, have some uh, some skin in the game, as they say, and enjoy the season that way. Kevin, thank you very much for the time. For those who um, are interested in some specific NFL 2017 topics, we'll cover that in a bonus episode that will be live before week one. So that will be out by the time you're listening to this. I suggest everyone go and check that out if you haven't already. Uh, Kevin, before I let you go on this episode, where can people find you and your work? And I guess how can they follow you and what you're up to over the season?
1: Well, you can follow me in two places. The best place is probably on Twitter. I'm at QuantCoach, spelled just the way you think it would be. And then my website is www.quantcoach.com. The website's pretty uh, dormant during the off season um, when I spend time with my, my family and my kids, but come week one of NFL football, I'll be putting up some thoughts um, every day, uh, once a week after the games, just a few short, random thoughts about the games, tracking the coaching statistics, tweeting out and posting who are the top 10 uh, coach teams, who are the worst 10 coach teams, and uh, keeping track of those all-important turnovers for you because that's super critically important to your handicapping
0: yeah absolutely and it's it's so much fun to go in a bit of an nfl deep dive someone of your your caliber and a high echelon uh nfl expert i would say and it's great to learn about some of the strategies that you implement and some of the things you think about and i guess for the listeners certainly they can grab bits and pieces that help them and apply to them and their betting and and hopefully help them win long term so again thank you very much kevin for your time much appreciated and look forward to uh to the season kicking off and hopefully uh a return to the Super Bowl for the Falcons.
1: <laughs> yeah, I hope for your sake, Jake, that would happen. That was a fantastic year for Atlanta last year, and oh, just a terrible way to end it. Just very, very hard to to go out that way. Another, another indication of the greatness of Bill Belichick, unfortunately, at Atlanta's expense. Really appreciate you having me on. It's been great. I thank you, and, and I would be happy to come back anytime you want
0: absolutely there'll be a part two and a part three and more down the line so we can have some more nfl deep dive so thanks again kevin
1: you're welcome take care